Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for welcoming us along again to Windsor. It's lovely to be back with you. I think the last time I was here was literally just a few months or weeks before David started with you, so that'll give you an idea of roughly the last time I was here. Um, and uh, we just meet for worship up in the Octagon in the King's Hall, the, the church that I'm involved with, Christ Church. And we often pray for the other churches, certainly in the area, but throughout Belfast as well. And Windsor would be certainly included within that prayer. We recognize that you guys have been here for a long time, that your witness is a crucial witness in the area. And we're also quite encouraged. We've had some help from you in the past in terms of missions work. Um, when some of you guys advised us whenever we were setting up our missions policy, and uh, we certainly look up to you in terms of the, um, the heart you have for mission and the impact that you're making. So thank you for having us along. And I do share the love and the support of Christchurch with you guys. Um, and one of our elders texted me this morning to say that, that they were praying for us as we met with you here this morning. Um, whenever David was speaking to me, um, you were going to have two services uh, in August. One was going to be uh, on a character study in the New Testament, and the other was to be one of the seven deadly sins. And uh, I had just done a wee bit of work around the seven deadly sins one when David said, we've decided not to have the evening service. And, uh, and I must say, though, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the work. I thoroughly enjoyed looking into it. And uh, those of you who have never, because I'd never looked into it before, those of you who have not done that, look into the seven deadly sins and uh, see what you can learn from those. Um, there's a particularly great resource by Oz Guinness, which he compares the Beatitudes of Christ to the seven deadly sins, and teaches, his t- teaching in it is excellent. So, unfortunately, we're not going to be looking at that. We will look at the character study. But what I believe that we look at this morning is, is really helpful for all of us as Christians, just trying to grow as a Christian. I imagine that if we were to to do a survey amongst you here this morning to figure out what you would like help with as a Christian, probably most of us would have growing as a Christian high up on that list. I want to just uh, speak from one verse. We're not really going to speak from this verse, but let it encourage us. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. Um, And from that then we're going to look at the character of Mary of Bethany and see what we can learn from her life that helps us Live up to this verse in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. I find these type of verses challenging for us because um, I've been a a Christian since I was 12 or 13, and I'm now 43, so that's going back 30 years. And uh, quite often we do look back over our lives and ask, have we grown? And uh, it can be a challenging question for us to ask ourselves. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. There's this sense of continually growing that Paul speaks about in this opening verses of his letter. And he says the same thing in the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians as well. There's one thing about Paul that when he writes the churches, no matter how difficult the situation is in the church that he's writing to, And no matter if he's going to give them some hard teaching later on in the letter, he's always thankful for them. He's always thankful for them because their very existence as believers is proof of the message of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fills him with encouragement. And recently in Christ Church we were looking at the issue of did we feel like a second class Christian? That when we come into the group of Christians that we meet with regularly, do we sort of sit in the pew and look around and think, you know what, 
Everybody else here has got their Christian walk sorted out, and I haven't. And that makes me feel like a second-class Christian. Well, there's no such thing as a second-class Christian, and Paul makes that clear in, as, as, in how he opens his letters, by always giving thanks for every single one of you. Even when he wrote to the Philippians, and he was writing uh, a letter to deal with division in the church, and he very publicly dealt with that division, he specifically says that he gives thanks for every single one of them, even the people who were having difficulties with each other. So let me just encourage you before we look at this, this area of growing, that there's no such thing as a second-class Christian, that if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus for our salvation, we are bringing a blessing to him and bringing a blessing to the whole church. And the journey that we are on is dealing with everything else, all of the doubts, all of the struggles, all of the sins. That's what growing as a Christian is about, is learning the disciplines, learning the walk with the Lord, but most importantly, growing in our love and affection for Jesus. Jesus said this, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That, I think, is what growth is about. Moving from being a servant of Jesus to being called by Jesus a friend of Jesus. So, what we want to do this morning is have a look at the life of Mary of Bethany. And just I want to learn from three parts of her life how, what growth can look like in growing as a friend intimately with Jesus. This idea of moving from being a servant to a friend um, is, is a growth in intimacy. And, and uh, many of you, I'm sure, have seen the film um, called Mrs. Brown, where Judy Dench is Queen Victoria, and Bill, Billy Connolly acts the, uh, play, the part of a man called Mr. Brown, who was in her staff, I believe, in Balmoral. And it was after her husband had died, and she was in mourning for a long time, and basically he was the person who had such a relationship with her, a real relationship with her, which allowed her to move on in her mourning and her grief. And that picture that you see in that film, I think, is something like the relationship that Jesus wants from us. Not the standoff, um, having to distance ourselves from him and just worship him, which of course we do. We must worship him in reverence and awe. But to come to a, part in our, to a place in our walk with him where there's an intimacy and a growth in our love for him. So he says in John 15:15, 15, 15, I no longer call you servants but friends. His intention is that we would grow in our love in a very tangible and real way. Mary of Bethany is someone who I'm sure we've come across many times, and we, we know the story of Martha and Mary. We know the story of the raising of Lazarus as well. But there's one bit in that story, in between those two stories, that I think gives us a bit of an insight into the difficulties we have in our growth. To the times whenever we had a point in our growth where we're not sure about Jesus. We're, we're not just as sure about everything that we once believed. Is it all true? Um, can he really deliver what we hoped he would deliver? But you know the story of um, Mary and Martha. They were the, their brother was called Lazarus. And it would seem that these three siblings, well we know that they lived together in Bethany. It would seem that they were probably orphans. Um, but it would also seem that they had a large enough home to invite Jesus to and the disciples who would lodge with them uh, if they were in the area. And that area was a mere two miles from Jerusalem. 
I don't know if you've really grasped this, but Jesus was a really, really controversial figure. And it was a courageous thing for them as these young people to have Jesus stay in their home. Now, in hindsight, we can see how it it was the right thing for them to do. But at the time that Jesus was around, there was a lot of tension surrounding him. And that seems to be the pattern. Whenever God is doing something fresh, when God is doing something new, when he's bringing a new era in, there's tension around it. Because not everybody is comfortable with it. And there's quite often opposition to it. I want to give you two examples from recent history, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, um, which really um, highlight that for us. George Whitfield, who I'm sure you're aware, was involved in one of the uh, great awakenings that both the United Kingdom and the United States experienced at the same time. And he preached on both sides of the Atlantic um, at the height of that awakening. Well, in the early days of his ministry, when God was starting to do something through him, his preaching was so effective that his church building wasn't big enough to contain the number of people who wanted to hear. And so the sensible thing to do would be to preach in public. But back in those days, it was illegal to preach in public unless there was a public execution. The difficulty was that it was also legal during a public execution to let restraint go in any way that the community wanted to. And they would party and they'd basically go mad. A guy called Victor Shepherd uh, records the following in the life of Whitfield, um, explaining that Whitfield was looking for an, ex- an, an opportunity to preach at a public execution because it was legal to do so. So before long, a scheduled execution brought about this opportunity. Whitfield's heart had been broken by the coal miners at Bristol, men who were as violent as they were vulgar. And once the date for the hanging had been set, the miners began anticipating the celebrations surrounding the entertainment. But when the murderer cheated them of their amusement by committing suicide, the miners dug up the corpse and partied around it. Whitfield walked among them in full clerical attire and began speaking to them from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thoroughly despised and contemptuously shunned, these miners found in Whitfield someone who loved them and therefore did not fear him. But immediately the church authorities arranged for all Anglican pulpits to be closed to Whitfield. And he was undaunted. The next Sunday, 10,000 people joined themselves to the miners. And so the Great Awakening started to have momentum. When God starts to do something new, there is often opposition and tension surrounding it. But it's unstoppable. The same thing happened around William Booth and the Salvation Army. The Salvation Army started as a mission with William Booth preaching in the open air mainly in the east end of London. This is a few years, this is maybe half a century later, and it was by this time legal to do so. Um, So mainly in the east end of London or in cities like Nottingham. But usually he was preaching to the poor, and therefore the people who were coming to faith were not actually welcomed in the church buildings, in the Anglican church buildings and the Methodist church buildings that he was accustomed to preaching in. And so he had to start up the Salvation Army. He had to find a means for teaching them and discipling them. 
And although they were seeing thousands and thousands come to faith, and although the Salvation Army were engaged in some of the most challenging of poverty relief ministries, they often became the target for hatred and physical abuse. It's not just the the churches who closed their doors, but also society didn't appreciate what they were doing. Stories are recorded of salvationists being physically assaulted in the street and one convert who was pregnant was beaten so badly that she died in the street. In the early stages they received no protection even from the police but they persevered, they kept going and Augustine tells us that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and a movement grew that saw millions of converts around the world and one of the most effective relief ministries that the church has ever engaged in. There's always opposition when God is starting to do something new. When something fresh is starting to happen, there's always opposition. But when God is causing it to happen, it is unstoppable. And this is the environment that surrounded Jesus and the disciples. This is the sense in which these young people, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, this is what they were being enticed into. This is what they saw that brought them hope and encouragement and excitement. For them to bring Jesus and the disciples into their home was a very courageous thing. But then we come to probably one of the most uh, famous stories surrounding Mary and Martha. Um, In Luke chapter 10, as Jesus and the disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Here we see Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Jesus, drinking in every word. But Martha is so frustrated with her. And actually, who wouldn't be? There is a really important rabbi and 12 other male guests in their home. And there's so much that has to be done. Those of you who have friends around for uh, hospitality now and again will know how much work is involved in looking after them, even if it's only two or three people. There's an amazing amount of work involved in that. I am married 20 years now, and I don't think that when I was first married I understood how difficult all of this was, but I don't get it wrong anymore. Um, I used to. I used to think there wasn't much involved in hosting. But after a few years, I used to pick up the slightly different intonation in Nicola's voice in front of other people, or her very definite eye gestures to me when she was trying to attract my attention to get me to stop talking and to help serve something. And uh, I reckon that Martha had tried all of these things with Mary. And Mary had either ignored the messages or she'd been oblivious to the gestures. I reckon that the disciples and Jesus and Lazarus would have been deep in kingdom conversation. Maybe, for example, talking about the resurrection on the last day or or salvation. Or maybe a parable that the disciples had struggled to grasp that Jesus had taught that particular day. And Mary was sitting at his feet drinking it all in. The Bible tells us that Jesus' teaching was like nothing that anyone had ever heard before. And for Mary, it was captivating. His words 
caught her heart and caught her mind. Her mind was being engaged at a deeper level than it ever had been before. And everything was starting to become making sense and become exciting for her. But eventually Martha's frustration with Mary gets the better of her. And she appeals to Jesus himself to make Mary realize her responsibilities in the home. To, to, to more or less stop poking her nose into the men's conversation. And did you notice what Jesus said? Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I think the first thing we learn from Mary in this area of growing to love Jesus is that we need to listen to the words of Jesus. In John 6 and 68, Simon Peter said, You have the words that give eternal life. Your relationship with Jesus involves words. It involves his words which express his heart. Words like, come unto me all you who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. His words like, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And his words like, your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. If we're going to grow and continue to grow, then we must allow the words of Jesus to cultivate that growth in our hearts. I wonder how long it's been since you took time to really listen to his words. Time that you might find by turning off the TV or turning off the games console or moving away from the internet. Time where you can have unhurried time in the presence of Jesus, sitting at his feet and listening. I think that it's fair to say that most leadership teams in churches worry that the people in their churches don't know their Bibles well enough. And it actually can become quite a legalistic thing to worry in that sense, that you end up trying to improve your congregation's knowledge of the Bible. Well, of course it's really important that we we understand that we hear the words of Jesus through the Scriptures. But I don't think any leadership team purely wants their congregation to grow in knowledge and facts about the Bible. They want you to engage with the words of Jesus, the words which give eternal life. And so uh, we encourage you, as you want to continue to grow, to engage with the very words of Jesus himself. Let him speak to your heart and let him bring you in this path of growth. Take time to meditate on his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or take time to meditate on him on the cross, the words he spoke on the cross. Figure out for you why it was necessary that Jesus would have to die on the cross. Why was there no other way? Figure out why it was the only, that only the way of suffering and shame in your place so that you could be freed from the wrath that is to come. Why that had to be. And in doing so, find peace with God the Father. Mary drunk in the words which gave eternal life. And it is a vital dimension in our growth from being servants to being friends. We hear Jesus and his words bring us to life and continue to sustain us and grow our life in us. Then the second incident in the life of Mary that I want us to think about is whenever Lazarus was taken seriously ill. 
she and Martha send word to Jesus that he should come to Lazarus. And Jesus doesn't come immediately. And by the time he does come, Lazarus has been dead for four days. There's a contrast between Martha and how Martha and Mary interact with Jesus. Initially, they nearly say this, exactly the same things to Jesus. But Martha says more to Jesus than does Mary. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Mary, as I read it, is keeping her distance from Jesus. I think she's feeling let down by Jesus. Mary and her sister had been through a terrible lot in the previous four or five days. They had been nursing their dying brother. They cried out to Jesus to intervene. And as far as Mary could see, he didn't intervene. Her brother died. And the hope that she had in Jesus intervening had been taken away from her. According to historians, uh, that in these times whenever uh, someone died, and in fact I think this still happens in many cases today in very hot countries, but according to historians it was the woman's task to prepare a dead body for burial. The body was washed, the hair and nails were cut, and then it was gently wiped with a mixture of spices and wrapped in linen strips of various sizes and widths. And while this was happening, prayers from the scriptures would be chanted. The body would then be carried to a tomb and laid on a long shelf carved into the stone. It could be wrapped in a shroud, but otherwise the body was uncovered. The tombs were visited and watched for three days by family members. On the third day after death, the body would be examined. And this was to make sure that the person was really dead. For accidental burial of someone that was still living did happen. And so whenever Jesus comes on the fourth day, this would have been the first day that they were not due to enter the tomb and tend to Lazarus. This was the end of their care for Lazarus. Not only had their brother died, but also all hope of his recovery had gone. And I think Mary comes across as having a broken heart. In fact, she is so heartbroken That when Jesus himself speaks to her, he is moved by her pain so much that he weeps bitterly. The the word that is used to describe Jesus weeping in the scriptures is a translation of a cry that came deep from within him. So moved was he by her pain and so angry was he with what death does to those he loves that it draw his tears, not just tears but a deep weeping and anxiety with him when jesus then jesus performs by far the most powerful of his miracles he quietly prays and then he speaks words that are so full of authority that lazarus stands up and then comes out of the tomb now there were other times when jesus had raised people from the dead And these he did privately. And on one of of those occasions, he actually told everybody to keep it a secret and not to tell everyone. But here, when we're a mere few days or weeks before the events of the cross, he is declaring openly his messiahship, his authority over death. He explains that he himself is the resurrection and the life. And he says, he who believes in me, even though he dies just like Lazarus has, yet will he live just like Lazarus does. 
Jesus is showing us in the most tangible and spectacular way that his mission is much more significant than that of being a healing ministry. His mission was to resurrect all of us from the grip of sin and impending death and to fill us with his life. And I want us to keep an eye on Mary here just this moment before the resurrection. Let's remember just what happened with her. She didn't come to Jesus, and when she did come to Jesus, she basically complained that he didn't come. But let's move on then to the third event in her life, which I think helps us understand what was happening at that point. When Mary and Martha are hosting a celebration in honor of Jesus because of the healing of Lazarus. Lazarus was also at the meal, as were the disciples, as were some other guests. Mary owned a very valuable jar of expensive perfume. In today's terms, we reckon it would be worth around about £15,000 for this pint of spikenard. And I think we could be fair to assume that it was her most valuable possession. And she brought it with her to this meal. She came to Jesus with it. She broke open the alabaster jar that it was contained in. And she poured it over his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I think that this was as much an act of repentance as anything else. I think that having been heartbroken over Jesus' delay and his seeming uh, lack of intervention for Lazarus, I think she was repenting of that doubt and of that lack of trust, that dilemma that she was in about Jesus. Regardless of how she had valued Jesus in her earlier life, she had come to a point in her life now where she had understood his infinite value and worth. And the way she expressed this was to use what was probably the most uh, valuable asset she had to bless him. And again, when she did it, there was opposition. It tells us that everyone in the room was indignant with her. Because, as Judas explained, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And the only one in the room who understood what she was doing was Jesus. And it was even more valuable to him. What she did was even more valuable to him than selling it and giving it to the poor. And we know that the work amongst the poor was a crucial ministry that Jesus has called us to. But what she was doing was more important than the work amongst the poor. I think that what initially seems to be a low point in Mary's relationship with Jesus, when she's full of doubt and hurt, when she feels let down by him, as if he has broken her trust, I think that turns out to be the biggest step in her walk with him. I think it's an even bigger step than any of the disciples had had at that point in their walk with Jesus themselves. I want to just talk for a few moments to, to those of us who feel caught in that moment of doubt and hurt. Maybe that moment of starting to lose faith in Jesus because he doesn't seem to have turned up when we have asked him to. I reckon if we could have Mary of Bethany on the stage with us here this morning, that she would tell you to keep holding on. She would tell you that her experience of Jesus is that what seems to be the darkest moment in your walk with him can turn out to be the most amazing time of growth. And your eyes can be opened to a whole area that you hadn't been aware of before. She had the amazing privilege of seeing Jesus face to face, 
of touching him, of hearing him, of discussing things with him. And although we don't have that, she would tell us that she heard Jesus say that there was going to come a time whenever people who had never seen him, heard him, or touched him, who would come to faith and love him. And that those people would be even more blessed than she and the disciples were when they had seen him. I think that this is why Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that they would grow in faith, hope and love, is crucial for us. That we aren't going to physically see Jesus. We can't grow that way until we see him in heaven. We aren't going to physically touch him until we see him in heaven. We can't grow in that sense, but we can grow in our faith, we can grow in our hope, and we can grow in our love. Moving from being servants to being friends of Jesus. In a few moments we're going to serve communion and it's going to be an opportunity for us uh, whatever we believe the state of our growth to be like. It's an opportunity for those of us who are believers to reflect on his death, his sacrifice and his, his love for us. And let me invite all of you who are believers whatever stage your walk is at to participate in communion and to communicate with the Lord as you do that. For those of you who are not believers, or maybe you're not comfortable with how things are done, then don't be embarrassed. Just let the elements pass by you to the person beside you, and uh, don't be embarrassed about that. But let me encourage you that whatever point of your walk with the Lord at the moment, that you can grow, you can continue to grow, and that even those points in our lives, whenever it seems as if he has let you down, he is doing something more spectacular than you ever imagined. And it will all become clear in the future, even if it isn't clear at this moment. We've just been through a series in Christchurch which was called Resilient Joy from the book of Philippians. And when we sung that hymn um, this morning, I, I think I've only ever heard it once before. Um, and it's a beautiful hymn. I wish we had had that one, which talks about rejoicing. Um, uh, that would have been a fantastic hymn to have along with it. But the, the, the main message we got as a church... And we have people going through the most difficult of circumstances at this moment in their lives, whether it's through business, whether it's through health, whether it's through bereavement, uh, whether it's through relational issues in their families. The main message that the Lord brought to our church was that joy is available regardless of what we face. And that this joy may be something which we totally benefit from in the future and we struggle to benefit from right now, but as the scriptures say that Jesus for the joy which was before him endured the cross, then we too, for the joy which is before us, can endure the situation that we're in right now.